Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, to look around you at the uh, state of the world today, one <clears throat> might almost forgive people for longing for the zombie apocalypse. Uh, probably the most significant figure of horror for the contemporary world. Uh, the zombie uh, represents the inhuman within the human or the post-human within the human. And it's uh, very familiarity somehow stands right alongside its continued force to shock and amuse us in a peculiar fashion that has drawn a great deal of cultural commentary. Uh, uh, the zombie, at least in its more contemporary guise, being such a relatively recent baddie, unlike ghosts and ghouls and uh, vampires and various other uh, creatures drawn from more uh, traditional sources, except for the fact that the zombie itself has its origins within particular uh within a particular tradition within uh, haitian voodoo uh and the environment of uh african american in the broad sense of the americas afro-caribbean religiosity uh that uh has also played a really strong role in the kind of contemporary mind frame of horror but what's the connection between these two zombies between the uh the the shuffling, uh, revived cadaver of the Haitian countryside uh, working mindlessly in a sort of allegory of slavery. Uh, what connects that creature to our modern contemporary zombie apocalypse uh, with the hordes of creatures looking for nothing more than to eat our brains? Uh, this question is at the core of the book by our guest today, John Cousins, is a <clears throat> artist, writer, and educator uh, based in London. He's also a, a PKD fan, and uh, we've talked about uh, Vallis and uh, uh, Dick's own experience in uh, British Columbia before, and maybe we'll get to that later in the show. Uh, but uh, right now we're talking to John because of Undead Uprising, Haiti, Horror, and the Zombie Complex, a new book that's come out on Strange Attractor Books with a very handsome cover full of all sorts of creatures and ghouls. And uh, in the book, John does a remarkably thorough job of tracing the history of the zombie figure from its uh, origins and discussions around Haiti and fears and fascination with that uh, particularly uh, sort of evocative land, which plays such a significant role, especially in the American context of a kind of familiar other, uh, and we'll get into that, and tracing the history of the zombie as it develops through popular culture, through fiction, and particularly through cinema, um, and, and as it evolves through the Romero sequence and seemingly leaves some of its Haitian context, although always carrying on some of the fascinating uh, 
dialectics and allegorical imports of this particular figure. And so it's uh, uh, as a as a, a fan of uh, voodoo and of Haiti. I've been to Haiti a couple of times, uh, though many decades ago now. Um, I actually went there with one of the uh, authors that. Uh, uh, John draws from in his book, which is kind of funny. So there's something uh, uncannily familiar about some of these topics uh, to me, and it was uh, it was a great read. So I look forward to talking to John. And here he is, John. Welcome to Expanding Women. Yeah, hi Eric. Nice to be here. Yeah, very good. You know, I want to get into your book, but I think it might be a fun way to set the stage to have you talk a little bit about your dissertation. Uh, which uh -huh. was on uh, Bataille and the video nasty controversy, which will probably not be known about by many of our listeners and is a kind of fascinating uh, insight into a particularly UK sort of phantasmagoria uh, involving a censorship and, and, and uh, be exploitation cinema. So I, I'd just like to hear a little bit about what you, uh, you know, what led to that being your project and, and, and how it connected with Bataille. And it seems like that's a, a good place to begin uh, understanding your, your attraction and interest in the zombie complex. Yeah, cool. No, that's good. Uh, it's kind of, um, it's a, a kind of well-rehearsed uh, narrative for myself, uh, so I can do it easily here. Um, I uh, was studying for a master's degree in art history and theory many years ago, and um, I was doing something on the Spanish painter Tapies, and my supervisor said I should look at an essay on something called base materialism in a collection of essays about Georges Bataille, who I'd never heard of. And um, when I read those essays, uh, read Bataille for the first time, uh, I was suddenly reminded of the horror films that I'd uh, watched as a kid, mainly Hammer Horror, but also some kind of TV uh, thriller shows. And uh, I suddenly realized I was really more interested in those than I was in Tapies's paintings. And um, I asked if I could do a, uh, write a thesis about the powers of horror and the attraction of horror. And Bataille seemed to legitimate uh, a form of culture that I was uh, immersed with, immersed in as a kid, but didn't think was a legitimate uh, field for academic research. So I began approaching horror from a Bataille perspective and eventually wrote a PhD thesis about Bataille and the Video Nasty controversy. Now, uh, for your American listeners, the Video Nasty is a term that was introduced in the UK in the uh, early 1980s when there was a it's very much tied to the emergence of VHS uh, and uh, video uh, and the fact that videos were not light uh, were not controllable in the same way movies that went to the cinema were so for a movie to go to the cinema it needed to go, go through the British Board of Film Classification get a certificate you know X triple X U whatever the rating was to control the audiences Whereas you could go to a video store and get any film you wanted and no one should even check your ID. So there was a bit of a moral panic emerged around a number of films, uh, Driller Killer, Evil Dead, um, and, and others, uh, that kids were watching them and that this was very dangerous for society. And um, so there was a, a kind of moral panic raised by the tabloid press and uh, the director of public prosecutions uh, you know, compiled a list of 72 films, which the, the, the tablet press called Video Nasties. And these were films which were so beyond the pale 
that the government needed to do something about it to stop young children, particularly adolescents, being exposed to films with uh, gratuitous violence and sexuality that hadn't been classified by the British Board of Film Censors. So there were the video nasties. And uh, I wanted to look at those films from a Bataille perspective, which really, basically, Bataille's kind of had an idea of existential horror as being something with revolutionary potential. So being exposed to images of extreme transgression, blood sacrifice, uh, somehow had an intoxicating effect, which was tied in in complex ways, which is probably too much to go into here, with Bataille's theory of revolution in the 1930s. So my question was, you know, is there any way in which these films could be revolutionary? So I looked at films like Faces of Death, Last House on the Left, I Spit on Your Grave, and, and I think particularly pertinent would be um, Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, so that's what I did for my PhD. I wrote about those films. Uh, and uh, what was particularly important in the discourse of censorship around them is this notion of the copycat effect, that these films were so powerful that they could induce people to go out and commit similar kinds of acts. And there was even some claims, which, which were kind of Bataillean, that um, they would e even lead to you know, fascism or perhaps communism, or they would have some powerful social impact if they weren't suppressed by the, uh, the authorities. So in many ways, the censors and the people who believed in the power of video nasties were more kind of sympathetic to Bataille's worldview than the people who said, uh, well, actually, you know, th these films are really harmless and anybody should, anybody should be able to watch them and it isn't going to affect them. It's kind of a superstition and mumbo-jumbo to think that these films could uh, enter people's minds and kind of take over their consciousness. So, uh, yeah, so that's how I got into this particular set of issues and concerns. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, attention. I never really quite thought about it that way, where and you see the same thing, let's say, in the discussion of, you know, violent computer games, is that there's this kind of contradiction where, on the one hand, you want these things to be transformative, whether in, a, a, in the revolutionary context that you were looking at or if you're looking at, you know, possible new forms of society or new ways to be together or how to like, you know, how to explore the mind, you know, all these sort of different higher goals, let's say, that are that are, that you find on top of, you know, some people who are advocate for computer games. And then at the same time, any suggestion that there's a sort of negative consequence, that there's a copycat effect, that people, you know, develop the ability, you know, more of a facility for violence or it becomes more automatic. Um, then, then we, we, we switch to the other thing. Well, this is just entertainment. It's it's no big deal. It's just a lot. Don't don't get don't take it too seriously. It's, and I think a lot, I think that split is is in a lot of us about uh, these. You know, we want our, our our these vehicles to be transformative in some way, and yet the uh, the the dark side of transformation. Uh, we oh no we, we don't want to think about that it's just it's no big deal it's just entertainment and in a way that's sort of the dialectic of entertainment it's like it's just a show but if it do, if it, at some point you don't think it's more than just a show then it's not a very good show. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right, and uh, you know that's the kind of Bataille really opens up that optic as you you know you're very familiar with Bataille too that you know you can't only have all the good side of things. You know, if you're going for complete transformation or radical transformation of subjectivity or thought or anything, you, you, it doesn't just come, you know, with the good package. You know, there's always the risk. There's always the underside. There's always the chance that you take that you're going to have a bad trip. That it's going to be, you're going to be, you know, fighting off demons for, 
you know, the foreseeable. And that's the risk that you take by entering into the, the challenge that radical culture offers to consciousness and to society. Uh, but it can't always be the good. It can't always be on the progressive side necessarily uh, in bringing about some, you know, brighter future for everybody exposed to it. Well, you know, I, 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 we will get to the zombie, but I, I've been I've been thinking about this issue, and I'm curious how you think about it. Uh, that the whole gesture towards transgressive culture, uh, which you know, let's say me, I, I probably first encountered in the 1980s when I was you know interested in amok books and sort of there was kind of this weird post-punk culture interested in serial killers and you know this whole kind of domain. Um, yeah. including videos and things like this. And, and there, so there's been kind of a, at least in, in that framework, a longstanding sort of zone of popular culture that is aggressively transgressive. And it went into performance art and the circus stuff in the 90s and Joel Coleman's art. And there's so many elements of it. And it always seemed to me that there was this kind of radical potential, whether an explicitly political revolutionary force, I'm not so sure, but certainly in terms of a radical uh, a sense of possibility, of, of transgression, of challenging cultural norms, et cetera, et cetera. But everything is so weird today. Everything is so confusingly dialectical in the sense that it's like the, the most transgressive is now you know, ad copy for, <laughs> you know, yeah. for whatever name your corporation. And then at the same time, there's this sense that there, that we're still locked into some, something that could be, could do with some transgression. So I'm just curious for you, whether maybe, and maybe that was even part, partly your interest in the zombie project is that it, is that it added more explicitly historical dimension to some of these issues brought up with horror and transgression, because in my impression, and, and, I, and, and I want to hear your, your response as well, that 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 impulse got in a way or that that potential got a, a bit played out, let's say, in postmodernity, that there was a way in which there there was a charge. There was certainly a charge for Bataille, uh, but that increasingly people who were making those gestures were kind of simply iterating their own kind of cultural identity and that there was some kind of way in which the law itself changed enough that they didn't have that bite anymore. And I'm curious whether you, you see this as a passing phase, this kind of transgressive possibility, or whether it, it continues to be available in the experience of the abject, of the outside, of, of death, uh, of sexual transgression, et cetera. Yeah, that's a really great question. And uh, yeah, uh, let me try and answer it as best I can. For sure, you know, you talk about, you know, um, sort of the death culture, apocalypse culture, and muck journal. That was all the stuff too that was I was into at the same time, late '80s, early '90s. It kind of set a, a milieu, a context. That was the same time as the video nasties. It was all happening around the same time, in the mid to late '80s. At the same time, Bataille came, kind of became academically acceptable. You know, the Manchester University Press, Visions of Excess, the October edition. People started talking about transgression in a milieu where there was a lot of transgression in the culture, a lot of question about that. I think that what happened towards the, in the middle of the 90s was that it kind of coincided with a kind of simulation debate, the postmodern, but particularly the Baudrillard debate, where this idea that, you know, there was a kind of sense that capitalism could capture anything. It hadn't quite got there yet, but even something like snuff films, which in the, you know, at, at that time, you know, writing in the early 90s when Correx and, and Slater wrote their book, Killing for Culture, 
snuff films were a myth at that point. They, you know, people had talked about them. They had, you know, they were reputedly films. But, you know, all the films like, you know, Cannibal Holocaust or Faces of Death, you know, it's now recognized that all those things were simulated. So transgression um, uh, and excess moved into this realm of simulation, the kind of Baudrillard moment. And then you go in this kind of like Bataille in Videodrome sort of world where everything became very strange, especially in the late 90s. And I was very much wrapped up in a kind of sim-stim, death-cult fantasy type uh, arena where kind of, um, you know, Gibson, Blade Runner, Count Zero, Neuromancer, the whole kind of idea that, you know, there might be some capture of excess in the interest of some, you know, insidious capitalist spectacle that is actually a, a form of control in Burroughs' sense. And all these were the kind of, you know, death of the parasite cafe, these kind of discourses with a really radical cutting edge of thinking up, running up to the millennium as I understood it. And uh, But things kind of ran away <laughs> in some ways after that. So now, by the other side of the noughties, you know, we have, you know, um, uh, YouTube ads or Google ads, you know, being coming up against, you know, jihadi beheading videos, uh, you know, that you can actually see people being murdered for propagandistic purposes, if you want to. Uh, it's actually come to fruition, the things that we thought were kind of science fiction fantasies, plus all the video nasties, which were considered to be, you know, deeply disturbing and challenging to our normative social values are now available on the Internet. You can buy them at, you know, your local video record store, with Cannibal Holocaust, there's no deluxe editions, there's, you know, so... This idea that transgressive culture had some radically subversive revolutionary potential seems to have been annulled very much by what's actually happened. Another thing I'd say about that is that I kind of retreated from the higher level philosophical debates and theoretical debates around transgression, simulation, um, you know, the kind of hypermediatization of society and the implications of that. And I did want to... Uh, ground the discussion and debates around the zombie figure in a real concrete um, history. Uh, so I kind of would, withdrew from the kind of more abstract theoretical debates, which was seen to be going around in circles. Uh, and I wanted to just tell a kind of a simple story of the, the path of the zombie uh, from Haitian folklore to apocalyptic flesh-eating marauder um, in kind of quite sober terms, really. Um, careful, considered terms to try and get out of that hyper-real simulation, snuff cult kind of area that uh, seemed to be characteristic of things into the noughties. Well, I, I comes, it, it makes it a really strong book because, uh, because you do do all of that rigorous history. You did a tremendous amount of research and you, and you lay out a story that's, you know, largely chronological and has a lot of uh, room for, uh, you know, particular issues in the history of politics and economics, as well as in the the horror complex and the kind of the psychosexual dimension uh, mm -hmm. of of these things. But it's at the same time, it's still enlivened by that that extra weirdness, if you will, uh, that makes it not at all uh, a dry a dry read. But it, it seems like a, a good place to start out. I mean, it's you know a huge topic, but I, but I think but you you talk about it in, in your book is just a little bit about the role that Haiti as a place, as a particular, uh, you know, historical environment, as this radical revolutionary, uh, you know, space 
what role it kind of plays in whatever the Euro-American imagination. It's very distinct. There's nothing like Haiti uh, in the way that it's been demeaned and the way in which it's been recognized as different, as exceptional, as not like other Caribbean countries or other countries in the New World. Uh, and there's something about that quality that goes into the zombie figure, even even into its contemporary transformation. So well, say a little bit about that kind of the particular qualities of Haiti that set up the zombie fascination that, that's, that's, that will come. Yeah, well, um, it came out of the Bataille research into video nasties and, and particularly this copycat effect in terms of you know, how I was drawn to it. You know, he didn't really figure on the horizon of my research. I knew about Maya Deren. I knew about Gibson talking about contact, contacting the lower on the matrix. You know, I knew something about voodoo, but it wasn't a particularly high-profile idea until I researched the history of this idea of the copycat effect, uh, but also um, contagious behavior and mass mass hypnosis. And when you start looking into the history of you know anxieties about mass manipulation uh, and demonic possession as a contagious phenomena, you quickly go back through writers like Gustave Le Bon, who makes a link between the behavior of people in a hypnotic trance, somnambulists, and primitives, or you know, people who uh, you know, aren't guided by rational, reasonable impulses. And it was when I was researching that history that I found out that Anton Mesmer, the inventor of hypnotism, or animal magnetism, but basically, roughly speaking, it became hypnotism or somnambulistic trance, um, had claimed that he was responsible for the founding of the Republic of Haiti, where the slaves had mistaken animal magnetism uh, with sorcery, and, uh, and the colonial regime was, uh, you know, ended in a bloodbath. Now, this was a wild idea, I thought, until I then began to research the history of mesmerism in Haiti. And what you find is, very precisely, this coincidence between the somnambulist and the zombie figure. Um, and they both seem to intersect through Haiti. You get a film like White Zombie, the first zombie film, 1931, where you know there's a, a white woman who is in a somnambulistic trance who may or may not be a zombie. And in those, the early phase of zombie films, the somnambulist and the zombie coincide. What's weirder about that is that there was mesmerism in Haiti prior to the revolution. And in fact, when you look at the historical records, it turns out that it, the colonial authorities seemed to believe that the natives or the, the slaves were mixing their African religions with animal magnetism, and they were very concerned about it right before the revolution. So there's this strange uh, coincidence of the way in which the narrative of the zombie in cinema coincides with that of the uh, somnambulist having some historical reality in what was going on in Haiti. Moreover, uh, many of the followers of Mesmer were abolitionists who preached the evils of slavery, uh, Republican abolitionists. So they were in Haiti preaching abolition, preaching republicanism, and practicing this thing which looked very close to some of the practices that um, uh, voodoo was involved in, most notably, of course, possession trance. 
which is what both practices shared. So what I found was that Haiti just emerged on the horizon of this, this two strands, the mesmeric, mesmerized somnambulist and the living dead person, both of which are what I call in the book agents without autonomy, but importantly, a, a remotely controlled agents without autonomy. So they're both figures who have no will of their own, can't tell you what they're thinking. Uh, they have their actants, they're going to do something, uh, but what they're going to do is not governed by their own will or their own intention. It's governed from the outside by some other force. And this is very much how the colonial authorities saw the voodoo dances, and particularly the Papaloa, Mamaloa voodoo dances, where uh, the authorities believed that the voodoo priests and priestesses had special control over the, um, the, 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 the slaves, and that this was a very dangerous control which might lead to uncontrollable um, behavior, which it seemed to do through the possession trance dances that were taking place in, in Haiti, um, sometimes in secret, sometimes more publicly on Saturday and Sunday nights when the slaves were allowed to gather and dance. So well, you, you, that, you mentioned William Burroughs and the idea of control uh, a moment ago, and, and, it, and that seems to be one of the interesting things about, about this figure, about the zombie figure, is that the problem of control gets raised in sort of multiple dimensions. It's it's not just the uh, the, the idea that the, the the possessed person is in control is controlled by, let's say the the uh, you know the the head priest or controlled by the god. But at the same time, there's the whole issue of of the of control over over enslaved bodies. So then you have yeah. this much this very different kind of organization of control, and then those issues get inflamed by all these questions about crowds, about uh, mass manipulation, and yeah. those too become part of the story, especially later when you, when we have the hordes of, of of zombies in the kind of post uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead area, where there's there's something about the way that control, which you think should be very clear the issues raised by control. Actually, yeah. the more you look at it, the more it sort of shivers and shimmers into multiple dimensions, some of which are spectral and occult, and some of which are are super gnarly, are very political and very violent. Uh, how did you kind of find yourself following this question, particularly of, of control and, and possession, which is something else that you play with the multiple meanings of in this context of on the one hand, the occult, and on the other hand, uh, modern capitalism. Yeah, well, interesting. It's great. You sort of nailed it. You, it's Burroughs. I mean, my first real insight into the theory of control and notions of control was reading Burroughs. In particular, Arpuk is here, which is, you know, something that I listen to over and over again. Um, you know, the Mayan control machine, um, uh, control needs time in which to exercise control. Uh, I was always fascinated by this idea of a kind of um, external agency of control somehow, uh, you know, shaping and informing our behaviors without our knowing it. Uh, so Burroughs really already had, and, you know, from his own experience, very much linked to addiction. Uh, which is also a very important theme that runs throughout the zombie figure, the, the idea of potions and uh, tinctures or, you know, the drug control. So I came at control from, from Burroughs uh, and also through Wilhelm Reich and, and, and a, 
his reading of his relationship to Freud. So, you know, I did all that psychoanalytic stuff like around the, the superego, the ego, you know, what is this controlling um, set of ideas that we associate with authority figures? So, you know, I went through all that kind of work, that kind of direction. But, you know, Burroughs was the first person to alert me to the idea that there would there are extrinsic systems of control that we may or may not be aware of um, that are governing our behavior, our thought patterns, and our actions. I mean, for Burroughs, it was very obviously fundamentally controlled, uh, related to language. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I followed Burroughs into general semantics, which is perhaps one of the, the best mental hygiene procedures I think you can go through in order to try and unsnip uh, the, the word and image lines that uh, keep you uh, controlled by this apparatus, whatever or whoever control is or is not. So, uh, yeah, Burroughs was the person that got me really interested in this kind of thinking. Um, but Burroughs isn't in the book. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, so you nailed it with Burroughs. And then that, in a way, there's something about that same uh, dynamic or a similar form of it that goes into this question of possession. Because yeah. when you're possessed, there, you, your, your consciousness is gone, your personality is temporarily in abeyance, and there's this other being uh that is in your in your place and at the same time possession is also this domain of of ownership of, of, you know that slaves are are that's what defines a slave is that they're actually possessed by uh their masters and so we we have this like incredibly rich allegory right off the bat uh in terms of zombie as slave and that's something that you talk about in in your analysis of, of white zombie, the film, because we see the, the enslaved zombies, you know, working in the factory over and over again, alongside this more uh, European story of, of somnambulism and a kind of Spengali uh, character. So there's all these anxieties going on uh, mm -hmm. in this, in this, uh, certainly in the cinematic uh, representations of, of the zombie. What, what what are some other things going on? What 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 led the zombie to be uh, embraced at least in the, originally in the 30s and 40s as this kind of horror figure? Um, what what else was going on at that at that time that that made it a that, that added energy to the figure? Well, you know um, the weird thing is it, 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 it the zombie journey in the 1920s and 30s it became a way of displacing a lot of anxieties about manipulation and control. Uh, onto um, you know supernatural or mystical forces, which may which at least in the case of Haiti were kind of to do with a kind of um, some notion of um, you know uh, superstitious mumbo jumbo. At the same time, there was a kind of displacement of the reality of the feeling of being controlled by forces ab above and beyond our own our own. Uh, will and control. And there's a moment there where you can see the Great Depression. You see the notion of capitalism um, being something which is out of control but affecting people's lives in ways that they can't uh, really do anything about. Uh, so there's a parallel there between the kind of unemployed laborer and the zombie, which uh, white zombie talks about. But at the same time, it conceals the fact that you know the American authorities had introduced forced labor into Haiti during their occupation from 1915 to 1936. So literally, when when uh, William Seabrook, who is the person who in the Magic Island uh, brings to the Western world the zombie uh, in a chapter from that book, it's the first time it enters into the English English language. 
um, and people start to recognize what it is. He doesn't make, draw the parallel between the fact that those zombies were working for the Haitian American Sugar Corporation, uh, literally for uh, an American Haitian corporation, which was uh, using forced labor, uh, as the American military were doing. And so this link between the uh, revenant of the plantation slavery system, which, of course, everything about Haiti, everything about Haitian self-identity politically is about having having broken the chains of slavery. It was the first slave-free republic on the planet. It was the first place in the world to fully and thoroughly abolish slavery. So its sense of self-identity is absolutely not being reduced to slavery again. So when the Americans come and introduce forced labor, it's one of the great humiliations of Haitian national identity to be forced to work again by foreigners. It's a massive insult. It was a huge insult to um, Haitian self-determination. So the zombie remerges precisely when, as a revenant of plantation slavery when Ameri- during the American occupation. That's not widely recognized at the time outside of Haiti because a lot of that was going on, you know, people, it was not reported. But at the same time, the zombie figure migrates into uh, Western popular culture precisely when that's happening. My sort of, one of the kind of, kind of conceits or the, the, the narratives that I kind of work through is, is this, this idea that perhaps this figure is sort of forced into new territories, or perhaps it has a mission. Perhaps it's actually a kind of sentinel of some kind that keeps its links to Haiti kind of, kind of secret or underground, but it keeps that thread going. So my hope is that the zombie figure, despite the fact that it has no autonomy, it can't speak for itself, it can never represent itself, somehow as a trope will lead us all back to recognizing where it came from, uh, which is this unbearable reality of a plantation economy in which human beings were treated as objects. And and that's never really been fully resolved in Western (laughs) ethics, philosophy, morality. We're still you know, have to come to terms with what it means to reduce a human being to an object, uh, to a commodity, to a, a piece of property, and make it do whatever you want to do until it, until it's dead. You know, it's, it, I, it's very strong words there, because especially from an American context, I mean, when I, you know, thinking of all the all the issues around racism in the States right now, and the way that it's, it's you know, bubbled up more in the last, you know, few years, five years, for all sorts of, of reasons, um, and, you know, we spend hours talking about those, but, but one thing that I, it all, always struck me is that one of the problems here is that even in a kind of notional sense, American society hasn't really, really gone through, let's call it a, a truth and reconciliation process, like a real acknowledgement of what it means to enslave, even if people historically many cultures did it. It's not a particular white strain or capitalist stain. Uh, it's, it's you know, a, 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 not a universal human practice, but certainly widely distributed. Nonetheless, yeah. within the context of the states and where its wealth came from and all of that, it's just there's there's this point that cannot be looked at. It's almost like one of these horror films, like you can't actually look at the thing directly. You got to look to the side or whatever. And uh, your uh, your presentation of the zombie invites us to peel back the contemporary, more kind of comic book layers, let's say, of the feral uh, insurrectionary army of, of speechless uh, brain-seeking zombies, and to find 
politics, history, and ultimately the, the particular horror of slavery as a kind of figure that stays with us. It can't go away because it's, it's intrinsic to the story, uh, even though it continues to be repressed in, 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 a, in a lot of ways. So given that kind of framework, how, well, like in a way, how, how and why does the zombie figure change from this folkloric figure, which is a black body mostly associated with, with Haiti or with the plantation system, brought back to life through some kind of occult magic. And then it shifts into this sort of more modern sense with, with Night of the Living Dead, 1968, you know, we get a different kind of zombie, though there's still traces of the older one. Why, why did that carry forward in that way? Why did they just come up with a new name? What, why did why did it remain zombie or or as yeah. as just sort of a term that we continue to use? Well, it's interesting. I mean, what happens is you have this classic phase of zombie films, uh, the early ones. Like I, I watched the zombie, White Zombie, which are the two you know standout That's... films in the, the early phase. By the 1940s, it's become a kind of joke figure, a kind of spooky fun figure. And um, in the book, I mentioned one of the most, for me, one of the most interesting chapters in the book is where um, I look at um, the, the the Baron Samdi figure in, in James Bond's Live and Let Die, and its relationship to black ops of the British intelligence and American intelligence services, where they put um, German uh, figures in zombie films, King of the Zombies, etc., to uh, try and bring America on the side for the, uh, with Europe for the Second World War by uh, making it suggesting that the Germans had influence uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, but around that time, it was still kind of a it's become increasingly a comical figure. Uh, through the fifties, too, it'd be kind of you know real B movie, spooky fun figure. Uh, and it wasn't until Night of the Living Dead that that comical, shuffling, slightly ridiculous living dead figure that can be made to walk over a cliff or, you know, point it in the other direction, it'll go and kill somebody else, um, took on a new lease of life. But obviously, or unlife, should we say. Uh, but what was interesting about that was that when Romero made this, and I'm sure you know this, it's kind of it's a well-known fact, he didn't call them zombies. Uh, they didn't have a particular name for them, but the nearest thing would have been ghouls. Uh, they wanted to play because, you know, zombies didn't eat people. Uh, so they become newly cannibalistic. Uh, they had certain features which had evolved, like, you know, not being able to being able to withstand bullets and, you know, this shoot them in the head thing had already involved, evolved, uh, which Romero picked up on. Uh, but they were ghouls. They were they were ghouls and ghouls are figures that live in graveyards. They may be dead, may be alive, but they they eat. They feast on decaying human flesh. That's what a ghoul does. So um, but. Very quickly, the response was that, that you know people started calling them zombies, and then there was a spate of Italian films like Zombies, Zombie Flesh Eaters, which followed on, and, and the name just stuck. So it kind of there was this break point where these were very different kind, not entirely different kinds of beings. They were still living dead, risen from the grave, corpse cadaver in the Haitian sense, but they weren't controlled by bokors or hungans or remote agents who were you know making them do things. They were driven by pure carnality, pure hunger, the need to feed. 
So they become this very different kind of entity with similarities, but the name stuck, and the name is what we understand it to be today. But there's definitely a break point when that happens. And in the book, I talk about the fact that in, in many ways, the, the, the zombie becomes, I call it, deracinated. It's like its roots in, in the politics of race in Haiti and slavery and uh, kind of uh, moved away from. But I still, my sense is that the zombie apocalypse is a kind of a desublimated racial holocaust that can't speak its name or a kind of revenge for the profoundly unresolved injustices of slavery, which would never, as you say, there'd never been a truth and reconciliation. And that was very clear, you know, the fact that uh, as Romero was taking the film to New York the same day that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, you know, this and the civil rights move, the, the references to the civil rights movements in the film itself, it was quite clear that there was, a, that, and black power was very, it was emergent and very strong at that time. Uh, so the race politics were around at the time. They were super part of what was going on in America in the 1960s. But the zombie figure sort of moved off in a slightly different direction. But I still think it carries that uh, sublimated rage with it. Uh, so that's my understanding of it. That's interesting. I'm wondering how, how is, is that something that other people, since there's so much discourse on zombies, I mean, there's so many people who are analyzing this figure. Is that something that comes up? Is that, uh, do you think people yeah, are acknowledging there's, there's that? A, yeah, there's a, there's, a whole, there's a whole kind of contemporary kind of theory around zombies, uh, the, the flesh of the flesh-eating variety, the apocalyptic flesh-eating variety, uh, that is, you know, has seen that figure as, as, as representing various marginalized subaltern uh, groups who are subject to, you know, what Agamben calls, you know, the logic of the camp, uh, you know, this uh, the extermination camp or the refugee camp. So the zombie com becomes a kind of allegory for any kind of marginalized group uh, that is subject to a, the totalitarian logic of extermination. Um, so... If, with that in mind, it becomes any group that can that can be killed at will, that is bare life, uh, that is uh, you know beyond uh, any reasonable uh, necessity to treat as a human being. So it becomes much more generalized as this kind of bare life figure. So what it does is it becomes much more of a catch-all category for any kind of identity which can be seen to be exterminated in certain circumstances, uh, and it loses its specificity as having its roots in the politics of race and plantation slavery. So it gains a kind of wider demographic, if you like, uh, underneath its potential representations, but it loses the specificity of the, yeah, say the plantation economy and the unresolved politics of race uh, and enlightenment that uh, um, you know, Western philosophy is still working through. So do you think it's, it, it can still be that it needs to sort of uncover that history to be to be more politically forceful, or is there a sort of power as well in the kind of openness of the of the of the contemporary zombie, where it's no longer linked to a particular history? It becomes, in a way, a kind of new universal subject, except it's the subject that's not a subject. <laughs> that's you know yeah. that's precisely the sign of where the subject is 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 prevented from going because they have to be you have to externalize these 
no, no longer humans or non-humans in order to control them. Uh, is there still a, a politics there in that in that newer uh, newer zombie form? I don't think the I think the philosophy, you know, the political philosophy of the zombie hasn't changed so much from reactions to the Haitian Revolution on the part of European white supremacists, conservatives, and others. I think we haven't. It's not that big a difference. In fact, it's, I mean, the zombies come a long way, as it were, uh, but. My understanding is the politics we're still dealing with uh, around blackness, about about race, around race invisibility, uh, around Black Lives Matter, you know, and all the politics attending that. Why is it, you know, we've got the you know prison industrial complex, you know, and et cetera, all the things we know about disproportionate incarceration of black people in America and other parts of the world. You know, we know all this. And I don't think that we have actually, the zombie figure, the problem, if you trace the apocalyptic zombie back through its through its various phases back to haiti we still haven't we're still at the haitian revolution and the and the and, the, and responses to that you know it was a black revolution and and it, it defined the white world in a way as the whites were those who were enforcing racial slavery on black africans and the the the, the the philosophy of the Enlightenment, all the great thinkers of the Enlightenment, Hegel, Kant, later Nietzsche, you know, still really our, our, our political philosophy uh, and our philosophy of history is still trapped in a way in that moment of not recognizing the Haitian Revolution for what it was. And well, I think uh, that because given that, part... I have one question about the Haitian Revolution is that, you know, like in my own sort of modest awareness of of that that particular history you know i read clr james you know i have some basic yeah. sense of it i i realize that partly because of my own interest in in uh in traditional religions and in in, in Boudin and all the sort of stuff that that i i mix the sort of uh occult side the sort of uh, uh, ritual side of mm. Haitian culture into my image or my imagination about uh, the revolution. Of course, there's these famous rituals that are kind of part, as you described, partly lore based in a little bit of fact, perhaps, but hard to read. But in general, then your book also made me recognize the way in which by by spectralizing the, the Haitian Revolution, by acknowledging or imagining its uh, uh, kind of re religious side or, or magical side, is also a way of avoiding the kind of way in which it, it, it's sort of this uh, thorn in the side of any kind of Euro European philosophy of history because it, it, it goes against the grain. It's the, it's the one that reminds <laughs> reminds the you know civil, white civilization about its its inherent contradictions and hypocrisies and yet can't be recognized as the liber libertarian nation that it also was at that at that point so how do you think about the role of religion of of traditional african religion in the the haitian revolution yeah, well, it's an important part of the book, and it's kind of one of the great, one of the most important lessons that I had in writing the book. You know, I was something of a romantic revolutionary mystic. Uh, my orientation was quite Bataillon. I had, you know, the great fantasies of kind of, you know, voodoo sorcery, you know, hypnotic trance states leading to revolutionary emancipation. 
Uh, I no longer um, hold those views after having done the research. Not that uh, I, I want to exclude the, uh, the fact that voodoo did play a role in the revolution, but the idea that somehow, you know, through hypnotic sorcerous trans states, you can bring about some overthrowing of uh, European superpowers uh, is no longer something that I, I, I hold any faith in or trust in. But I do understand why it happened, and, and, and there's a chapter I, I, I call the, the Romance of Revolutionary Voodoo, uh, and very important and central to that, and central to all my research, was this thing called the Boakai Man Ceremony, which is uh, the event which reputedly triggered the Haitian Revolution. Now, there's uh, historical research shows that there were certainly some events took place that were something like voodoo ceremonies, which preceded... Uh, very, you know, a few days before the, the great uprising that, that that began what would be a 13-year revolutionary war in which leaders from both sides swapped allegiances and all sorts of uh, deals were done. But whatever, it was a bloody long revolutionary war in which many people lost their lives and many people were betrayed, as all revolutionary wars uh, tend to be. But what's important about the putting voodoo back in, in the heart of the revolution is, well, there's two things. Firstly, part of the Enlightenment project was this anti-superstition kind of sensibility, you know, the enlightened sensibility. So most Haitian leaders have kind of maybe secretly practiced voodoo, but openly kind of condemned it because it was seen to be uh, regressive. Uh, in progressive historical terms. So it was, it was denigrated not only by European and American commentators, but also sometimes by Haitians, and especially the Haitian ruling elites, who still actually, you know, you know, look down on and would like to see the end of voodoo. At the same time, especially during the occupation, it was, it was during the American occupation where Haitian intellectuals and people later like C.L.R. James would see that the, you had to show that there were African roots to the Haitian Revolution because it wasn't simply a question of um, you know, a white European idea making its way through Masons and, and, and Republican mesmerists into the minds of uh, black Africans. You know, there are revolutionary traditions in Africa. There are spiritual traditions in Africa and political traditions in Africa. <coughs> and, uh, you know, so someone like Dessalines had expertise in military, military expertise that were brought from being African, being black, being part of that history. So it was an attempt to bring black history, African history, belief systems uh, into the, uh, to have a role to play in the Haitian Revolution, which of course they did. So, but that ended up kind of, I think, over-emphasizing the role of the voodoo ceremony that started the Haitian Revolution. That it almost became an entirely voodoo-initiated um, kind of event, uh, which I think you know really kind of takes away from what revolutionary wars entail, which is, you know, the mobilization of vast numbers of people to fight in wars against other groups of people who are mobilized by people on the other side and fighting long and drawn out and bloody wars to achieve national independence. I'm curious whether your, your sort of revision of your earlier romanticism has to do uh, largely with the specific histories of, of the Haitian Revolution and the way in which that fantasy has both illuminated and disguised what was going on, or whether it has to do with the larger shift in your own thinking about the revolutionary potential of 
altered states of transgression of of these kinds of things beyond its the the Haitian context. Yeah, I think um, you know I, I really respect voodoo and admire it as a as a religion. I think it's an ecstatic religion, uh, a shamanic religion of great depth, great insight, great beauty, uh, like many religions, uh, well, all great religions. So, um, uh, but, you know, to give you an idea of how my thinking changed, my original title for this book was uh, Undead Uprising, an Insurrectionary Grimoire. And uh, my kind of fantasy conceit there was that I would find out who the Loire of insurrection were, find out how to summon them, and we could have, kind of have a grimoire for anybody who wanted to set up their own, you know, uh, voodoo-driven uh, insurrectionary uprising movement. And what I found is that that's what really revealed to me the, the limits of my own fantasy, you know, that when you actually dig into who were the spirits of insurrection that were allegedly summoned during uh, the Haitian Revolution, and that's when you start to see that th there are warring spirits like Ogun, and his, you know, uh, Ogun Ferai is, is still uh, summoned and referred to when Haitians go into battle or struggle against an enemy. He's a, he's a warrior spirit, of course. You're going to summon, summon a warrior spirit when you go to war. Uh, but, uh, you know, other figures are, uh, you know, less tangibly part of the revolutionary project. So I guess I just found that, uh, you know, my own romance of what um, what revolution was. You know, you read C.L.R. James, The Black Jacobins, and you see that, you know, um, a revolutionary war is a bloody horrible thing uh, that... Uh, you know, you never know who's going to kick your door in and, you know, and murder you for what reason. Uh, and uh, you never know quite what side you're on when uh, it really kicks off. Uh, so that was my kind of, I became less idealistic about revolution. Yeah. No, that, that, no I longer a revolutionary. I, I was always it. an armchair revolutionary. <laughs> hey, we just have a few minutes left, and I, and I wanted to, to just hear a little bit about uh, your involvement with the uh, uh, the ghetto Biennale in, in, in Port-au-Prince. What what is your experience being uh, bringing your ideas and, and your 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 art uh, into the context of uh, of the Haitian art in intellectual? Yeah, scene? well, that's been great. You know, the thing is, I, I would never have been able to write this book with any confidence, or I wouldn't have been able to write it without having spent time in Haiti and met with Haitians and worked with Haitians and and understood something about the reality of life in Haiti. And um, so it's had a, a profound impact. Uh, and um, I think partly on making me realize that, you know, we have a lot of idealism and romance and fantasy about voodoo and its role in the revolution. But when you get to Haiti, it's a very, just a real living religion that people believe in and practice on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, it isn't necessarily um, making, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a revolutionary country. It's a country whose identity is found, is so suffused with the history of revolution that it's, it's, it's in the air all the time anyway. Um, also, so it made me kind of much more sober and realistic about um, the practical reality of voodoo as, a, as, a, as an instrument for radical social transformation, both inside and outside Haiti. Again, that's not to say I've got anything against voodoo. I just don't think it's a necessarily a, 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 an essentially revolutionary uh, mode right. of faith, practice, or ecstatic 
Um, Great, John. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Um, thanks so much for uh, for coming on Expanding Mind and talking about Undead Uprising. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. Great. We'll have to have you back and talk about PKD next time. <laughs> all right. For, uh, for all you out there, keep your minds open.